This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 27, uh, verses 11 through verse 26. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 11. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. O gracious God and heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for the great truth of your word and the comfort that it is to us. And even this passage where we see the suffering of our Lord Jesus continuing. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to see the truth that is here. And that you would truly bless your word to us as it goes forth. That it would truly bear, bring within us that rich and fertile, uh, find that within, within us that rich fertile soil, which brings about great and abundant fruit for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Bible often speaks of our salvation in a variety of ways and kind of using different kinds of imagery to really to better help us understand and appreciate exactly what it is that God through Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, for example, we find salvation described in terms of deliverance out of slavery. And we read this morning from the Ten Commandments and the preface um, that this is the Lord who delivered them out of the house of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Right. So the Exodus would be an example of our salvation. 
There's also being lifted from a dark pit and, and brought to safety. We find that uh, picture and imagery in Psalm 40. There's being freed from uh, prison. Uh, Psalm 146 uses that imagery. There's also the reviving of dry, dead bones. A uh, great uh, picture of our salvation uh, and how uh, in Christ we are, and the Spirit works to bring us to new life so that we might believe. We find that in Ezekiel. And then there's also being healed from, from leprosy and a variety of other diseases that we see in, in the miracles that Jesus performs. Again, all pictures of, of cleansing from sin and being renewed and restored uh, through uh, His blessing. And then there's also being made a new creation. Uh, Paul uses that terminology in, in 2 Corinthians to speak of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, there are many, many other kinds of images that are used. <clears throat> but the image that we want to consider today is that of a courtroom. The accused stands before the judge to face his accusers. And yet, in the midst of the trial, suddenly he's cleared of all charges and is set free. In fact, this courtroom imagery is closely intertwined with a key component of our salvation, and that is our justification by faith alone. The fact that by faith alone and not by our works, we're made right in God's sight. See, the word for justification was actually a, a legal declaration used in the courtroom, which the judge would make to basically declare the defendant not guilty. Well, this becomes a great comfort to us, because we know that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we truly are justified in God's sight. And on the last great day, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He will declare, not guilty, that this one is mine, covered by my shed blood. But there's another important aspect of our salvation that we find in the courtroom imagery, especially before us in our passage today. And that is what we call the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, instead of the guilty sinner receiving the just punishment for their sins, it's the righteous one, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who takes the place or is substituted in for the sinner and receives the condemnation and the punishment that the sinner deserved while the sinner is set free. It is a great exchange wherein the righteous dies in the place of the unrighteous. And so as we consider this account of Jesus' appearance before Pilate, uh, keep in mind that what's truly taking place here serves as a picture of what it is that Jesus has actually come to do for undeserving sinners like you and me. The righteous one is condemned so that the sinner, even us, can be set free. Or as the Apostle Paul says much more effectively in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Well, here in Matthew 27, verse 11, Matthew simply tells us, Now Jesus stood before the governor, 
Now, remember just a short time before this, Jesus had appeared before the Sanhedrin in another courtroom appearance. And remember the Sanhedrin was the highest court of the Jews, and that was a, a, a mockery of justice, that trial. And they had charged Jesus with blasphemy, a crime that in the law of Moses was clearly punishable by death. But of course, under Roman occupation, the Jews weren't able to carry out the death sentence, unless, as we just read about Stephen, it was a, a, a mob that quickly assembled and put someone to death. But as far as if there was going to be a legal process, they could not put someone to death. Well, besides, blasphemy, though, wasn't likely to even be a crime that would even get a hearing in a Roman court. And so uh, the religious leaders needed to come up with a charge that would gain the attention of the Roman officials. Well, since Jesus confessed to being the Messiah, and we know that the Messiah was to be a king uh, appearing in the line of David, that this becomes the perfect charge that they bring before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. See, the Romans wouldn't stand to have someone other than Caesar who would claim to be king in their midst. It, they would consider it to be treason, and treason certainly was a crime worthy of death. Now, Matthew doesn't record... Uh, it for us here, but but Luke has the summary of charges. Luke 23, verse 2 says, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is, a, is Christ a king. And so you see here the, the distortion of, of Jesus' teaching and the, really the bald-faced lies that they are presenting to um, to punch his pilot. But they do get one thing, right? That he says he is the Christ, and the Christ is a king. Well, they maybe leave out some important details and connections there, but that part was true. And so the accusers were doing their best to, to really make Jesus appear to be a real threat uh, to the people and to uh, really the, the Roman Empire. And so Pilate asked Jesus pointedly in verse 11, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus confirms it. It is, as you say, it's the same thing Jesus responded to um, uh, to Caiaphas, the high priest, when was asked, when he was asked the very same question. And this was the truth. Jesus was the Messiah or Christ. He was indeed the anointed one, the, the king of the Jews, and he had come to save them from their greatest enemy, Satan's sin and death. But remember, the common expectation of the Messiah among the Jewish people at the time was that he was going to be a political leader, one who would restore the glory of Israel as in the days of King David, and that he would do this, obviously, by breaking the, the yoke of the Roman Empire that weighed heavily upon the people. And so they believed the Messiah was going to, to chase off the Romans. Well, Jesus was truly a king, but he wasn't the leader of a political rebellion. This was the conclusion that even Pilate himself came to. Again, Matthew doesn't record it, but John, in his account, has Jesus declaring in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus was making it known that his kingdom was a true spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. 
And Pilate then found Jesus to be no threat to the empire. May have thought he was a little uh, not quite right in the head, but he didn't think Jesus was going to pose a threat to the empire. But the chief priests and the elders kept pressing, hurling many other charges and accusations against Jesus, trying to find something that would stick. Yet it seemed the more they charged him, the more Pilate began to believe Jesus was actually innocent of any crime. And so this would make Pilate very eager then to hear Jesus' response to the charges that they were leveling against him. But after answering that initial question with the truth, Jesus didn't say anything else. He answered nothing. He gave no defense against these false charges. And again, this would would have been highly unusual. We know it it greatly frustrated Caiaphas. Ultimately, Caiaphas had to put Jesus uh, under oath to get him to speak and to respond. Pilate likely had judged many a cases in his court. And so again, he was expecting it was natural. Usually the typical defendants that that would appear before him would would defend himself and give give their side of the story and and what happened to respond to the charges, especially if the charges against him were false charges and that the accusers were actually pushing for the death penalty. Well, then certainly you'd expect someone to speak out. The typical defendant would say all they could to spare their own life, even if they were truly guilty, I might add. But Jesus wasn't the typical defendant. And so he remained silent. And Pilate marveled at this silence. It astounded him. And we may marvel as we think about it too. Why didn't Jesus speak up and say something? Truly, if he... Why didn't he just say, look, this is the way it is. And we know that if he spoke, he would certainly speak the truth. And if he spoke the truth, we know that his truth would ultimately prevail. But he didn't speak. So why doesn't Jesus say anything here? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse 7 declared of the suffering servant of the Lord. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This scripture is fulfilled in this very scene before us as part of the humiliation and the suffering of our Lord, that He would be falsely accused, and yet He would speak nothing. And because Jesus' silence was in fulfillment of the Scriptures, well then it also means that it was in accordance with the perfect plan and purpose of God the Father. If Jesus were to speak up in defense, again, He would speak the truth, and that truth would prevail. And if the truth would prevail, then he wouldn't be condemned and he wouldn't be put to death. Friends, if Jesus wasn't put to death, then we surely would have no hope for the forgiveness of our sins. It was necessary then. Indeed, it was God's eternal purpose for our good and his glory 
that Jesus would remain silent before his accusers and before Pilate so that he might be unjustly put to death. But Jesus' silence also shows us once again his own commitment and his desire to serve his Father's will. Even as he had prayed just a few hours earlier, uh, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus knew exactly what he must do to secure our salvation. And so again, here we see him willingly submitting himself to that will. And at that moment, at this moment, Submitting to the Lord's will meant silence before his accusers. Pilate marveled at this. But Jesus' silence actually put great pressure on Pilate as he found himself in the midst of a very real dilemma. Jesus was innocent. And because with this, we already know, right? He's the perfect and holy, only begotten Son of God. And in Him, there is no sin or, or shadow of darkness. Even though He was tempted and tried in all ways that we are, yet He never sinned. He broke neither the law of God, nor the law of man. Well, Pilate also knew that Jesus was innocent. We see this repeatedly in Pilate's words and actions throughout this account. In verse 23, Pilate declares, Why? What evil has he done when the people cried out that he should be crucified? And then in verse 24, he calls Jesus a just person. That is, a just person is someone who is not guilty. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. That he had done nothing wrong. Certainly, he had done nothing that was worthy of of death. Pilate also knew the Jewish religious leaders. See, Pilate had been governor of Judea for uh, about seven years at this point, or at least in the midst of, for a time period of seven years. I think he maybe was a little bit shorter than seven years. He had maybe another year or two left. But he had dealt with these religious leaders many times before. Right? He knew of their conniving hypocrisy, In fact, in verse 18, we see Pilate knew the chief priests were envious and and jealous of Jesus. And and a clue to this may have been that if Jesus was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, well, why wouldn't the priests and and the religious leaders, why wouldn't they be excited about this? Why would they suddenly turn on this one who claimed to be the Messiah according to their to their scriptures, to be their king? Why would they turn on him and accuse him? Pilate was not dumb. He knew something wasn't right with this picture. So what was Pilate to do? He knew Jesus was innocent. And it seems as though Pilate had had some standard of of justice or some sense of justice that he was actually reluctant to, to put an innocent man to death. So he was looking for a way out. And when opportunity came, again, uh, Matthew doesn't record us, but we find this in Luke's account at this point, that upon hearing that Jesus hailed from from the region of Galilee, well, Herod was in town. Herod was the tetrarch of of Galilee. And so uh, Pilate packed Jesus up and said, hey, this guy is not my problem. Send him over to, to Herod. Have Herod deal with him. Well, that would have been a convenient way to escape this situation and this dilemma. 
But Herod was of no help. Other than seeking to satisfy his own curiosity, he had long heard about Jesus and desired to, uh, to meet him. But he was disappointed that Jesus wouldn't put on a, a show of before him and, and perform some kind of miracle before him. But Herod also, even though he was disappointed, he did not find Jesus guilty of any crime. But he didn't want to deal with him either, so he sent him right back to Pilate. Well, then Pilate's wife even gets involved in the case. And at some point, verse 19, in the midst of all this, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have had suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So Pilate's wife had had some kind of a nightmare early that morning. Now we know the Romans, they were, they were superstitious idol worshippers. And these kinds of things, these kind of uh, dreams, they would have taken as, as an omen, as a, as a bad warning. Something bad's going to happen if you have anything to do with this man. So just stay away. Don't put this just man to death. In fact, have nothing to do with him. Now the interesting thing here is um, uh, Pilate's wife probably wouldn't have known at all that Jesus was even appearing before uh, a pilot at this time. And so she's stirred up by this dream. My husband is uh, deciding a case with some man. He's a just man. He needs to be warned to have nothing to do with him. Well, truly this dream was sent by the Lord to further press Pilate in this dilemma and also to further emphasize to him Again, as another witness, that Jesus was innocent. And so Pilate couldn't escape the truth of Jesus' innocence. But the chief priests and the elders continued to press for death. And so this was a true, a very real dilemma for Pilate. Well, then Pilate was reminded of a certain custom that might again give him a way out of this dilemma. As a gracious gesture to add to the celebratory occasion of the time that there was a custom that the Roman governor would release a prisoner to the people. And in some ways, this was an appropriate way to mark the Passover and and the exodus from Egypt and deliverance from bondage. And certainly with a large number of Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem for the Passover, It was also a good way to help appease the crowds and to keep people under control. Pilate even decided to give the people a choice in the matter and perhaps even deliberately chose a certain notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Barabbas had been arrested for insurrection and and he was a murderer. Some people died in the midst of that insurrection. And it seems that Pilate was really kind of here making a bit of a gamble. Because here was, on one hand, was Barabbas, one who, excuse me, <coughs> truly was a threat to, uh, to the people and to the empire. He was truly a, a bad apple that would be re- clearly rejected by the people. No one would, would want to be identified with him. But then he also offered meek and mild Jesus. This prophet, this teacher, this miracle worker, this professed king of the Jews. Well, Pilate assumed that they would certainly pick Jesus, the Messiah, over this hardened criminal Barabbas. 
Well, certainly this way out of the dilemma may have worked for Pilate. But you see, Pilate underestimated the determination of the chief priests and the elders of their hatred that they wanted to see Jesus destroyed. He also may have underestimated their influence among the people. So while that while Pilate was pondering what to do, the chief priests and the elders were mingling among the gathering crowd and inciting the people to choose Barabbas over Jesus. Now, we don't know what they uh, told the people to convince them. Perhaps they offered something, uh, something saying, uh, for example, that Barabbas, look, this Barabbas, you know, he's, he's actually more of the kind of, of Messiah that we're looking for, right? He, he's started this insurrection against the Romans. That's the kind of guy that we're looking for in a Messiah who's going to truly deliver us. As opposed to this guy over here, yeah, he, he does these miracles, but he's not done anything against the Romans. Well, we don't know what they said, but whatever it was that they told the people, it worked. As the crowd increasingly cried out that they wanted Barabbas released and that they wanted Jesus not just put in prison, but they wanted Jesus crucified. So what was Pilate to do? Again, the effectiveness of the religious leaders' influence over the crowd was was significant. The people looked up to the chief priests and the elders, and and if these were their leaders telling them to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus, well, who were they to question that? They certainly must know something that that the people didn't. They trusted them. Besides, we also know that they had no great love for Pilate. There was a, a long, disturbing history between the Jews and between Pilate. And they may have grown suspicious as it seemed as, as Pilate was actually pushing almost Jesus on them. Pushing to that they would release Jesus and choose Jesus. So despite him, they go for Barabbas. Now again, sometimes we wonder how many of those gathered in the courtyard that morning were just a few days before laying down palm branches and praising Jesus as he entered Jerusalem singing, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And now they've gone completely in the other direction and are calling for Jesus to be crucified. Well, certainly such can be the whims of those who have no grounding in faith and truth. And certainly why we ought never to simply follow the crowd. Even as Pilate tries to vindicate Jesus, in verse 23 he says, Why, what evil has he done? The people just simply cried out all the more. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. What started out earlier that morning as a relatively calm commotion had now just turned into a frenzied mob that was thirsty for blood. And Pilate, seeing that there was no swaying the people and realizing that things could quickly get out of hand, he relents. In verse 24, and he washes his hands before the people as a symbol of washing his hands clean from the blood of an innocent man. And then he turns Jesus over to be crucified. And we see here, ultimately, it was Pilate's fear of man 
ironically the same thing that the religious leaders uh, struggled with. They, they feared man more than they feared God. And here it's the same with Pilate. He feared the riotous people as well as he feared Caesar and what Caesar might do with him if Caesar learned that Pilate had lost control of Jerusalem that a huge riot broke out in Jerusalem. He was afraid that he might lose his position. Fear of man is what led to Pilate's collapse and the greatest injustice that the earth has ever known. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was condemned to die. And so if the righteous one is condemned to the painful and shameful death of crucifixion, well, who are the guilty ones? Who are the ones who go free, at least for now? Who are the guilty ones who go free, who face no immediate punishment for their crimes that they've committed? Well, first there's Pilate. Pilate is guilty. He's guilty for condemning a righteous man to death. Again, Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and and time and time again, as you read through this passage, he's trying to find a way to let Jesus go. But the people would have none of it. He was even warned by his wife, don't have anything to do with this just man. Pilate is truly guilty for this injustice. Even though he went through this public ritual and, and washed his hands before the people, claiming in, in verse 24, I am innocent of the blood of this just person, well, that doesn't actually absolve him, absolve him of any guilt. See, it doesn't work that way. Guilt isn't something that you just wash away with soap and water. No, because of his position and power as the governor and as judge in this case, Pilate clearly had the authority, he clearly had the power as governor to release Jesus. He could have released Jesus at the very start. He could have just told the Jews, go away, I don't want to hear this. I'm going to let this man go, he's done nothing wrong. He could have kept uh, released Jesus and Barabbas. Right? There's nothing saying that he just had to release one prisoner. If he offered both, he could have released both. He's the governor. He can do what he wants. He could have also kept Jesus in prison for a few days, had him flogged, and then released him. Now, that though that still would have been a, a great injustice, an unjust punishment for an innocent man, but it certainly would have been better than condemning a just man to death. And so Pilate is guilty of putting a just man to death and for this he must give account before this very same just man on the last great day. And Jesus will remember. Although Matthew <clears throat> doesn't mention his role, again, we, uh, we talked about it earlier, but we know that Herod too was guilty. Right? Luke tells us that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod and Herod heard the case, but again, Herod also found no fault in him. Because of Herod's position as the Tetrarch of Galilee, he too had the authority. He could have intervened on Jesus' behalf. He could have said, he could have just taken over the case. Okay, I'll deal with it. Oh, I don't find anything wrong with him. Let him go. Or he could even, even intervene um, uh, to Pilate 
and made the argument to Pilate and urged him to let this man go. He's not done anything wrong. He could have advocated for truth and justice. But again, he only fulfilled his own curiosity about Jesus and sent him back to Pilate knowing that he would surely be condemned. A just man would be condemned. Herod would be held to account will be held account for falling, failing to stop this injustice when he had both the authority and the opportunity to do so. And of course for Herod, to, he added later to this guilt by uh, bringing persecution upon the uh, early church and, and putting even the Apostle James, another just man, he put James to death in Acts 12. Well, God would hold Herod to account And he rendered justice upon him soon after that, striking Herod with a dreadful affliction that ultimately led to his death. And so Herod is guilty of shedding innocent blood. The Jews also, especially the religious leaders, but even those who were gathered together in the courtyard that morning, they too were guilty. The religious leaders certainly had the burden of the guilt because they plotted and schemed against Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. Right? They repeatedly tried to, to set traps for him and discredit him. But of course, all the time, what they really wanted, what their true heart's desire was, was to see Jesus destroyed. They wanted him dead and out of the way. They bore false witness against him and they used their influence among the people to lead the people astray to convince them to call for Jesus' death. And yet even all those people are guilty too. The ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. In fact, they even bring a curse upon themselves in verse 25. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Now note here, it clearly says, all the people said. All those that were gathered there. All of them said this. Now some may have uh, unfortunately, mistakenly take this particular verse, this passage, and they take it out of context and they use it as a, a just basis for, to persecute the Jews throughout history. In fact, even up to this day, there are people who will make this argument that this, we can go ahead and persecute the Jews because of this. But this is an abuse of this text. There's no ground here for anti-Semitism. Indeed, the fulfillment of this curse came long ago, most clearly in 70 AD, when the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple destroying those people and their children, leaving the city in ruins. Because they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, whom God sent to save them and deliver them from their sins. And so the Jews gathered there, but especially the religious leaders were guilty. And we find the guilt of all these Pilate, Herod, the religious leaders, the Jews, and even the Roman soldiers who carried out the execution, we we find their guilt clearly being laid out before them. And in Acts chapter 4, we have the apostles uh, are praying after being delivered from uh, from prison. They say this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, 
We're gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before be done. So they're saying, these were all guilty of the death of the Holy One, the Anointed One. And so they all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ on the last great day to give an account. And again, Jesus will remember. But note that they, though they were all guilty... God sovereignly used their sin to accomplish His perfect plan for our salvation. And this is truly wondrous in our eyes. Again, it comes back to the, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That great uh, mystery that's hard for us to understand, but it's a reality. But there's one other guilty party here, and that is Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty of sedition and murder. His trial had already happened and he was judged and condemned to death. He was a true criminal uh, that was headed for death and indeed there was already a cross that was prepared for Judas. Or excuse me, for Barabbas. But despite Barabbas' guilt, he was set free. Now, after this account, we have no further biblical or even reliable traditional record of Barabbas and and what happened to him and how he may have utilized his new lease on life. Was he moved by this whole experience? Did he turn from his sinful and and violent ways or did he persist in them? We, We don't know. But we do know this. Unless Barabbas, at some point in his life before his death, unless Barabbas repented of his sins, he too will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the very one who took his place on the cross. And it's this truth demonstrated here, that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was condemned and took the place of the wicked, guilty sinner, It's here that we see the glory of the gospel which Jesus has accomplished for us. Our beloved of God, we, we are Barabbas. Wicked and rebellious sinners deserving of condemnation and death. And yet Jesus Christ took our cross and He died on it in our place. Endure the wrath and curse of God for our sins that only we deserved. Jesus was our substitute. And by dying the death that we deserved, He made atonement for us. That is, He reconciled us to God so that we might have true union and communion with our Creator. As the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins, Jesus secured for us the forgiveness of sins and the right to be called sons of God. Brothers and sisters, this was God's sovereign purpose and plan for our redemption to accomplish the good news of the gospel so that there might now be hope. Hope for the Jew and hope for the Gentile. Hope for all through faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the hope for the Jew we see really in the other side of the curse that they call out in in verse 25 when they say, His blood be on us and on our children. 
Now we've already considered the judgment side, that they will be held accountable and, and guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. But there's a hope side here as well. For the blood of Jesus would be upon many of them and many of their children as they would be covered in the blood of Christ, washed and cleansed from their sins as they later believed on Him as the Messiah and Lord. And when you think of the the thousands of Jews that were converted on the day of Pentecost and and the thousands that continuously joined them day by day as the gospel spread throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, surely some of those who condemned Jesus on this day or their children were redeemed by the blood they or their parents were guilty of. Of shedding, showing us once again really the unfathomable riches of God's grace toward undeserving sinners. Beloved God, truly, in this is love that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus, the righteous one, died for us in our place. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, this is the truth of the gospel. Believe it. Embrace it. Trust in it. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we rejoice and give thanks for this reminder of our salvation and our redemption and all that entailed. We're so mindful of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and and all that He endured on our behalf. But that He would take the place of a wicked sinner, an undeserving sinner, one who truly deserved to suffer the punishment that was in store for Him, even death itself. And that Christ Jesus took the cross of Barabbas And in taking the cross of Barabbas, Jesus took our cross and died upon it, enduring your wrath and your curse for our sins so that we might now be reconciled to you, so that we might now be forgiven of our sins, so that we might now walk in newness of life. Father, your grace poured out upon us in Jesus Christ is too much for us to possibly imagine why we don't know we can't even imagine why you would do such a thing why you would free the sinner and that the righteous one would be condemned but we rejoice and give thanks that this is what you have done, that this was your plan and purpose from before the foundation of the earth, that you would save undeserving sinners, even us, through the atonement, the perfect atonement, the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, we praise you and thank you. We, We humbly acknowledge our unworthiness, but we praise you and thank you, Father, for such a good and blessed gift 
and for such a great and abounding, undeserving love. And so we pray that as we have experienced this love, that we would be even more emboldened to go forth with the gospel, to proclaim this truth to others who need to be freed from the bondage of sin in their lives, that they too might be delivered. As Jesus has taken up their cross as well. And so we pray for boldness in these things. We pray that you would truly uh, apply these things to our own hearts. That we might be filled with gratitude. Seeking to serve and to glorify your name in all that we do. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.